Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next great episode of the Joy of Financial Planning podcast. The topics of this podcast are a complement to the book, Joy of Financial Planning, which launched last holiday season 2019. The book is about a belief, a belief that we can overcome the unique economic challenges we face as a generation, follow our passions, live with compassion, and still achieve a personalized version of the American dream. It's also a belief in the joy provided by the discipline of financial planning. Yes, I did say joy. This episode is a fulfillment of a promise. For me, it's really important to get the financial planning content out there. That's why I wrote a book in the first place. And I'm so thankful for those who have supported the process of writing a book by purchasing a copy. But I'm really interested in making sure this content gets out to everyone. So to do that, I'm actually recording the audiobook in this podcast. I'm going to start with the preface and go through all 369 pages of this book, not all in one episode. Uh, today, it'll just be the preface. But eventually, over the course of this podcast, probably by the middle of the year, we'll have all 33 plus chapters recorded here on the podcast. And so if you're the kind of person that likes to listen to books, this is your opportunity. I'm going to start now with the preface. Would you ever run for United States Congress? In 2012, I ran for Congress against a 20-year incumbent in Northern Virginia as an independent. I wanted to solve the country's economic challenges, working through the political system I had followed closely for years. I wanted to be a part of creating the American dream for anyone who dared to believe. But I lost. I'd always believed in a certain version of the American dream, my personal version of the dream was the kind that started with an idea, solve this simple but important problem, maybe ending a disease like they did with polio, and ended with giving most of my wealth away to my alma mater. Though attending college was supposedly a no-brainer, I'd always set my sights on entrepreneurship. In fact, on one quiet Sunday afternoon in 1993, after what I thought was great thought, I told my dad that I intended to drop out of college. My dad had just innocently walked down to the basement, where I usually was, to say hello when I coldly announced that I would no longer transfer to George Mason University after completing an associate's degree at Northern Virginia Community College. No, that plan was old news. Too pedestrian. I would instead focus on becoming a successful entrepreneur. My dad looked at me thoughtfully and kindly. Rather than sharing his internalized shock, he merely said, Son, why don't you keep going to college for me? I looked into his eyes, noticing an odd mix of disappointment flecked with hope, and instead of defending my half-baked plans, I quietly conceded, Okay, Dad. Thankfully, my dad's wisdom saved me from missing out on a great formal education in the overall university experience. I did indeed eventually transfer to what is now the largest research university in the Commonwealth of Virginia, George Mason University, and I graduated with a bachelor's degree in accounting. How dreamy. 
I had a straightforward career path as a corporate accountant ahead of me, but I couldn't help continuing to dream. For over 20 years, my full-time career has involved the subject of money, from my college job as a bank teller to my positions as an accountant, then as a headhunter and United States congressional candidate, and now as a certified financial planner practitioner. I've made the business of money my profession. Making money work for families rather than just the other way around has become my personal mission. The study and practice of financial planning have given me a roadmap to the American dream. Why write a book? There is no doubt that writing a book has a cachet all its own and for good reason. Many of us raised in the Western Christian religions are familiar with the phrases the good book, the holy book, and the book of truth in reference to the Holy Bible. Other religions and cultures have their holy books or collection of books too, like the Tanakh, if I'm pronouncing that right, the Koran, the Book of Mormon, the Vedas, the Tripitaka, and others. We learn to study with books as children and continue into adulthood. As an adjunct college professor, I can attest that even now, the book is where the test questions come from and, by default, the answers. We are born and raised to revere books more than any other medium. Search Why Do We Love Books online and you will find over 2 billion results. When I first began finance, I had many options from which to learn. And in 2019, I have many options with which to teach. Seminars, webinars, gamification tools, videos, podcasts, and on and on. I will utilize these tools to spread the messages I have for the public. But for me, and perhaps for my generation, education begins with a book. So I just had to write one. I graduated college in 1997 during the heyday of national booksellers. Barnes & Noble, a decade off acquiring bookstore chain B. Dalton, launched its consumer website that year and became a publicly traded company in 1999. Borders Books was still expanding. It opened its first international superstore that year in Singapore. The country's third largest bookstore was based in my metropolitan area of Washington, D.C., and it peaked in size during the 1990s. After graduating, I had the opportunity to read any books I wanted, and there was no shortage of bookstores. On many Friday nights, I would take the short drive to Borders to avoid rush hour traffic and flip through a book while listening to an open mic performance. On weekends, I would talk to another bookstore and just stare at the business books. Actually, I'd walk to another bookstore, wondering which one to buy, knowing that the truth, quote-unquote, of entrepreneurial success was staring back at me among the catchy titles and striking covers. I never went to the bookstore to meet new people, to my chagrin, but rather to learn and sometimes decompress. It was in many ways a sanctuary where I could do some great thinking about what I wanted to do and who I wanted to become. So I love books, and I love the bookstore. Though the mega bookstore chains have diminished since the boom boom of the 1990s, the independent bookstores are making a comeback. Hopefully you will do some of your greatest thinking in one of them and find a book like this one, and perhaps others, to inspire your truth. A friend asked, if I read this book, why would I need you as a financial planner? I told her she wouldn't. This is a book of curated information that anyone can take and quote-unquote run with if they choose. It is a book of options, but those options are ever-changing. 
As a professional, it's my job to keep up with them. I believe your success in life is determined by content, constant financial planning, which can be a full-time job. It just happens to be my full-time job. And a little note here uh, before I continue the book. My friend could take the book and just run with it, but it still would mean some investment of time, i.e. that full-time job. Nothing in this book can be taken as gospel from the jump, however. So as any professional would say, the disclaimer is, this book is information, it's not advice. If you'd like advice, obviously I have a financial planning firm that I'm very proud of. Um, If you have your own financial advisor, CPA, estate planner, go to them after you've empowered yourself with what's in this book. Okay, let me resume. The biggest and the smallest. What has anecdotally made the United States of America unique in the world is a muddy version of capitalism that allows for something more than haves and have-nots. Our country has no official caste system, so economic mobility or stagnation have almost always been choices. Even though the starting line hasn't been the same for every race, creed, and gender, America hasn't always required where you started was where you needed to finish. If our grandparents or parents didn't pay too much attention to national economics or the markets, that was okay. Economics kind of worked out for most of them, with the post-World War II boom and the rise of a nation that was unparalleled in the 20th century. But in the complex, competitive economic world of the 21st century, we are either haves or have-nots. We are either rich or broke. The world is moving faster and the country is moving further apart socially and economically. Gaining a personal financial footing has become more elusive. Achieving the American dream seems to be just that, a dream. I believe our generation still has so much to offer the world. I believe we are the ones the rest of the world has been waiting for. When I say our generation, I'm actually referring to two generations of adults, millennials and Xers. I'm a member of the latter, the smaller of the two. Xers, member of Generation X, were born between 1965 and 1980, or roundabouts. We are typecast as cynical and skeptical, and we used to be known as the slacker generation before we inevitably grew up. We have seen and experienced so much. We are old enough to remember a time before the internet, yet young enough to know how to use it. We grew up at a time when Parents got divorced a lot, and we came of age in the 1990s when music still had categories. Many of us were in our 20s on 9-11 in 2001, and we still sense that life has never been quite the same. Now most of us are married, have a couple of kids, and are left wondering what we did with our cassette tape collections. We still have our compact disc collections, even though we don't own CD players. As we were promised, we have had multiple jobs and some of us, multiple careers. There's truly included. We might have two or three 401ks from different employers hanging around, and we think we've seen statements recently, but we're not sure. We did not turn out exactly as we'd hoped, but then again, we didn't hope for much. After all, the skeptical part was true. We have been called the middle or forgotten generation. We are no longer consistently on the cover of popular magazines, except for maybe AARP magazine. We're just not big enough as a marketing target, I guess. Regardless, somewhere between the boomers and the millennials, we still exist. 
The larger generation, millennials, were born sometime between 1980 and 1997, so the oldest are approaching the big 4-0. They are nearly digital natives, they have had grand ideas, and they are culturally open-minded. They are also, predictably, the current punching bag generation. Everyone likes to make fun of millennials, except the millennials I know. They have also seen their share of crises. They were even younger during 9-11, and for the majority of their adult lives, our country has been at war in the Middle East and with terrorism. They experienced the Great Recession of 2008 just about the time they were old enough to start investing, and they haven't seen the securities markets the same ever since. Millennials are the ones with crushing student loan debt, who graduated into a changing economy that promises them gigs, but not much else. Like Xers, millennials have had multiple jobs and careers, and they recognize that nothing is promised. They have seen that no institution is sacred. They will most certainly be on the business end of the economic, environmental, and, if the most alarmed among us are correct, social uprisings we will face. Our generation's American dream is not lost, but we face different financial challenges than prior generations. The cost of housing and college have grown faster than inflation, and the trajectory of pay and interest rates have slowed. The safety nets of Social Security and Medicare are both on unfunded trajectories. Our macroeconomic outlook is dubious, with over $22 trillion in debt in 2019 and a federal income tax rate that has been trending lower. There is no telling how far out of balance our federal budget will grow and what that will mean for your employer, your pay, and your family. Problems. Joy of Financial Planning was written to solve a big problem. It was written for adults who woke up one day and realized how complex financial life had become. No one told us that life insurance was something we had to worry about. No one told us that estate planning was something for people under 90. Seemingly, all of a sudden, there are 101 things necessary to handle and keep the promises we made to our growing families and ourselves. You are working so hard and have become so busy. You really don't have time to go through all this financial stuff, but you know you're supposed to. You have parents and children to worry about. The term sandwich generation applies to you. You think your kids may have to work even harder just to keep up with the pace of change. You really just want to reduce your anxiety around money. Enjoy your family life. Achieve the American dream and change the world. Is that so much to ask? Great words. Two speeches in U.S. presidential history seem to sum up the best of what American idealism conjures up. One of those speeches was President Ronald Reagan's farewell address on January 11, 1989. Our 40th U.S. president gave us an illustration that served as the perfect epitaph to one of America's most remarkable presidencies. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity, 
And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it, and see it still. End quote. Of course, I didn't open the quote at the beginning, but I'm sure you figured out when I was reading Reagan's words. I was old enough to have watched that farewell address live, but I can't really remember if I did. In the years since, I've watched it online, and I've imagined our country at that time. The freedoms expressed may not have been felt by everyone in the 1980s, or even now for that matter, but they still serve as an ideal of what America could strive to become as a nation of opportunity, opportunities we hope to all enjoy as individuals and families. Our 35th president's life was cut short, and though I wasn't alive when John F. Kennedy died, I'm overwhelmed with emotion whenever I listen to his inaugural speech. He too sums up American dreams and ideal, ideals. Known more for two sentences, I hope that I can encourage you to watch the entire speech online, or at least read the text in the appendix of this book. A snippet in his words. Open quote. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it, and the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. End quote. Gets me every time. Our generation of adults does indeed have a role in defending freedom, our own economic freedom. The bipolar nature of not just our politics, but our economics is dimming the light of our shining city. It is up to our generation to dust it off or replace the bulb if necessary. We have to take a much more intentional role in the planning of our financial lives than our predecessors if we want to accomplish great things. It is not only important that our generation becomes financially successful, it is necessary. Our efforts on a personal scale will determine the success of our generation collectively. Your Real American Dream What is the real American dream? For many, it is a very personalized belief about the greatness of the United States of America. For others, it is an aspirational ideal enshrined in our founding documents in 1776 that propels us forward despite our human imperfections. For others, it reflects upon a dream of good old days that have long since passed, leaving us with whatever and whoever we are right now. Since 1993, my American dream has included starting a successful business which has now finally been realized. I want to continue the success of my firm while being present for my family and creating success for the families of all of my clients and their children. And as I approach the sunset of my life, I want to contribute to solving one of the world's biggest problems. Of course, of course those are big dreams, uh, but those are the best kind, aren't they?
What's yours? Do you dream of outsized financial success like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg? They created enough wealth to sign up for the billionaires only giving pledge, a pledge to give away half of your wealth during your lifetime. Do you dream of feeding the hungry, curing disease, fighting for social justice, cooling the earth, or setting a positive example of drive and ambition for your kids? Or at some point, did you give up on dreams altogether? Do you feel like you're just getting by? That faced with a manic economy, getting by is the best you can do for you and your family right now? No matter what your dream, money will play a role. Mother Teresa didn't need a financial advisor or an estate planner to affect change, but we need to have our finances in order to achieve our versions of greatness for ourselves, our families, the United States of America, and the world at large. Just getting by is no longer good enough. In fact, it's no longer possible. Many of us have been using an old financial playbook. It worked well for some in our grandparents' generation, just barely for our parents, and it is not working for ours. You either have or you have not in our new economy. No matter what your American dream is, achieving it takes a different set of skills. It is up to us to learn those skills, teaching what I consider the basics of financial skills is the purpose of this book. The real joy of the American dream was never about buying a house, going to college, having one job or career for 30 years, and then retiring until death do you part. It has always been about transformation, becoming a better version of yourself, providing for your family, and leaving a positive legacy for the benefit of your community. This transformation includes self-realization, exceeding natural limitations, and executing on good ideas. Joy of Financial Planning is about the joy of the American dream, transforming your high potential into measurable success for yourself, your family, and your community. If we were all empowered with that mission, imagine what a dreamy place this world would be. A word about prejudice and finances. My father preached, and I should put that in air quotes, though it's not in air quotes of the book, in the book. Um, my father preached that America was not prejudiced by black or white, but rather by green, as in money. I grew up believing that financial status could overcome prejudice around nationality, race, gender, religion, politics, sexual orientation, physical appearance, physical nature, or whatever other ways our fellow human beings find to segregate the in from the out group. Though I didn't internalize the injustice of the insider-outsider divide when I was younger, I noticed it in the movies. In First Blood, John Rambo was a Vietnam veteran who wandered into a small town after being discharged. Rather than reward him with the deference a U.S. soldier deserves, Rambo was antagonized his undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder was triggered, and he unfortunately went to war with the local police and National Guard. Despite the repeated injustice of his experiences, spoiler alert, the movie ends with him being taken into custody. Rambo First Blood Part Two begins with John Rambo in jail. It isn't lost on me that I'm a black man thriving in a traditionally Caucasian man's profession. Less than 5% of certified financial planner professionals are people of color, and fewer still own and manage a wealth management firm, 
as I have and I do. My last name, with its British and Welsh roots, has never betrayed the confidence of my race or culture. In fact, I once had a client ask me if it was my real name. He was about my age and admitted to the memory of the television show Gilligan's Island. And the wealthy character named Thurston Howell III. Indeed, mine is my given name, and I suppose it has helped me somehow along the way of life. Though I've never worn my race on my sleeves, I have consistently and undoubtedly worn it on my skin and in the tight curls of my hair. People in my generation and younger have had the good fortune to have been born into this country after slavery, Reconstruction, and the Civil Rights eras. We have been lucky. Still, the inequality that past generations of colorists have faced have adversely affected the progress of their descendants. Financial inequality due to race has a source that can be easily traced to historical inequality. My life experiences with race have been mitigated by how I was raised, where I have lived, and where I live today. I live in Virginia, and regardless of the racial challenges that this quasi-southern state still faces, we are a long way away from the Jamestown of 1619 when the first slaves arrived. Any challenges I face living in Virginia seem silly in comparison to those of the generations before me. So this is not a book about experiences with microaggressions, everyday insults intentionally, though I have and will likely continue to experience them. Some of you reading this book may live in neighborhoods or family situations that outsiders are curious about. They may ask, why don't you just leave? With my gilded name and mostly fortunate experiences, I have at times found myself asking that same unenlightened question of those I see on the news who are economically disadvantaged. With maturity earned through experience, I've learned that one answer is that it is easier to stay together in a place where you know your place than move to an unknown location where you are decidedly alone. Moving from being an insider to becoming a suspected outsider comes with very clear and imminent danger. Better to be poor and accepted than take a chance on wealth in another town and get arrested. I understand that for an insider, hanging out at the same bar or coffee shop is akin to real-life versions of Cheers and Seinfeld, two of my favorite now-canceled shows, by the way. As an outsider, your presence at a local pub or a bookstore or other establishment might be instead watched with suspicion. Having spent my 20s working with local unsigned musicians in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, I'm aware that bias is not limited to race. The musicians I served as band manager, business manager, and music rag writer were mostly Caucasian men and women. I was drawn to their musical talent. Though some of them and their fans were part-time hobbyists who have successfully moved on, others did not leave the ever-shrinking, low-pay music community. Fans supported musicians and vice versa, but the number of bars that support original music has decreased over the years. T.T. Reynolds was a music venue where outsiders turned into insiders. For a time, whether you had a lower back tattoo, one on your ankle or one on your neck, you were welcome. Even a guy who tucked his shirt in with no tattoos and an aversion to alcohol was welcome. It was frequented by people who, at the time, were on the lower end of the financial spectrum. Eventually, it was closed down for irreconcilable differences with the city of Fairfax, 
or the gravitational pull of gentrification? And where did all of those unwanted, loud music-loving, mostly tattooed young people, outsiders, go? Somewhere else. Prejudice is not limited to skin color or anything else. My dad seems mostly right that, in effect, the rich get richer no matter where they come from. But the spirit of this book is that it is possible to change your station despite outside forces that would prefer you succumb to the inertia of your current path. I argue that the rich get richer because the rich get help. I hope this book can help you become a better version of your financial self, no matter where you come from, who you love, who you are, or what you are. The strategies laid out here are a good foundation for meeting the challenges of our economy and changing the direction of your financial life. You will not always get help from the people around you. That's part of life. But this book will put you ahead of where you are today, no matter what is in your way. Okay, how'd I do? That was the first time I've read such a long segment, um, certainly out loud and most certainly on a podcast. So at this junction, mostly what I'll do in future sections of the book, certainly future content-filled chapters, is give you a little bit of color in and around what I thought about when writing that particular section or chapter. When it comes to this preface, it really was a blend of what is now the preface and introduction, uh, an introduction of how I sort of felt about what I was writing was what the purpose of the preface was. I think that's the purpose of prefaces in general. I wanted you to sort of know a little bit of my story, why I wrote the book, why a book, um, you know, how I feel about this community of uh, people in the financial industry and really how I feel about the community in general. So that was the preface. If you have any comments or thoughts about it, please do go to the Facebook group page and share them. It's just facebook.com slash joy of financial planning. If you'd like to email me, uh, jason at jasonhowell.com with your email address, of course, I will take that email address and invite you to the Facebook group page. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you're excited to listen to the next uh, section slash chapter. It's going to be the actual formal introduction to the book. We'll talk with you then.